From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. In the last few weeks, we have seen a few landmark changes impacting the LGBTQ community. On Friday, June 12th, HHS announced the rollback of protections for transgender patients. Of course, by Monday, the Supreme Court reached a landmark ruling that workplaces cannot discriminate based on LGBTQ status. And by the way, this is all happening in the backdrop of erupting discontent over the murder of Black trans women like Rhea Milton in Ohio and Dominique Fells in Pennsylvania. And it's also happening in the backdrop of a pandemic that puts health disparities front and center. And did I mention that it's also Pride Month? To help us make sense of it all, I'm happy to introduce Dane Mankin, who runs the LGBTQ inclusive program at Mainline Health. Dane, welcome to Radio Advisory. Thanks for having me, Ray. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your role at Mainline. I'm a family nurse practitioner and have always worked in a family medicine or primary care setting providing LGBTQ specific healthcare. I am the director of LGBTQ services. My role is to educate workforce, provide support for patients in different settings, work within the community and continue to promote LGBTQ needs as they revolve around health. Mainline, a few years ago, actually launched an LGBTQ inclusive care program, right? It's a set of practices. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that program is and and what it offers? That program was conceived of in the identification of a growing need of some specific services available and specific visibility of those services for LGBTQ people. Mainline at the same time as a system was developing a very robust diversity, respect, and inclusion program Hmm. for the system, not solely focused on LGBTQ. So those ideas were really nicely encompassed. I know this program has been up for, I think, two years now. What have you all done in that time? So in just under two years, we have up and fully functional five what we call inclusive care hubs. And those are primary care practices. One of them is an internal medicine practice that have stood up and said, we want to be providing gender affirming care as part of our primary care practice. And we want to be doing LGBTQ competent sexually transmitted infection screening and treatment. They encompass a pretty large geographic region. We want this practice to be available to people in their backyard. And I I love that example of kind of almost subspecialized primary care. I'm curious, is there anything that's been done across the system that supports providers and patients? We now capture every patient who comes into any one of our settings the name that they want us to use for them, a sex-specific or gender-specific pronoun that they want utilized, and we capture their gender identity and sexual orientation. And those are visible for anybody accessing their medical record to see so that they can get it right. Hmm. We've also addressed our infant nursing policy, which was previously known as a breastfeeding policy. 
but in trying to be more inclusive of people who may not use the word breast to describe their anatomy and who may not identify as a mother, but they gave birth to this infant, how do we use that policy in a way that's respectful for that birth parent? Hmm. That's an interesting example. What are the better terms to use there? Some people do use breastfeeding and that's fine to stay with. Some people use chest feeding. Some people just use, I'm going to nurse my baby now hmm. um, and go right to the action as opposed to the, the anatomy. Language really, really matters when it comes to providing culturally competent, inclusive care for transgender patients and taking a moment to look at your policies that you think are really natural, right? Like what you say to moms when they're nursing and recognizing that that might not be actually an inclusive term. Yeah, it just might not resonate with the parent. And if we're about supporting a new parent and getting them and that infant out the door with successful outcomes, not having them needing a whole lot of support from a lactation consultant, if we get it right the first time, then we save money. We know that providing culturally competent care is important for all people that are in the LGBTQ population, but I think given everything that's happening in the news right now, let's just focus our conversation on the T and what it means for transgender patients. So tell me, what actually is the role of transgender-focused care in the primary care space? Transgender care is unique in that it is not something that clinicians receive specific education. And it really has only become on-label and diagnoses-driven and covered by insurance over the last 10 years or so. And every clinician decides as they go through their career what they want to be good at and what they're interested in. And because when we talk about transgender people transgender or non-binary people, it's a really small percentage of people. So if you take the fact that there's not a lot of formalized education, there's some personal selection by clinicians as to whether or not this is something that's personally or professionally interesting to them, and then a very small population of people seeking these services, you can see quickly why there is not a huge demand and then huge investment on the part of every healthcare system for this pretty small patient population. It's an interesting story that you're telling, and it reminds me of something that I'm hearing a lot about now, which is a total left turn that I'm about to make, which is what's happening when it comes to direct-to-consumer genetic tests. Small percentage of patients are getting these genetic tests through 23andMe, et cetera, and they're coming to their PCP saying, hey, help me make sense of this. And I think across most of primary care practices I work with, they're seeing the need for education to, at the very least, equip PCPs to be able to talk about this topic. And I imagine it's the same when it comes to transgender care. It's probably still a small population, but there is a need for physicians and providers in general to, at the very least, be able to understand and speak to the specific needs of transgender patients. Is that the right analogy? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Um, I think I see it in two distinct ways, though. There's a difference between providers who want to provide actual gender-affirming care, so start the hormones, monitor the hormones, make adjustments to the medications, versus folks that are primary care providers that don't do that specific care but have transgender patients that they see for their sore throats and their annual physicals and their work clearance forms. So those 
those two things are sort of separate in, in expectations, and then they're really separate in the demand placed on the healthcare system mm-hmm. to provide that. And that's why we're talking about the the primary care space right now, where there are patients that have the sore throat needs and have a UTI and have concerns about COVID-19 and are coming to their primary care providers to get that level of care, but also through the lens of their specific needs. Yeah, it's a good point. And where I see it play out sometimes in a not particularly pretty manner is in places like urgent cares, where somebody who is transgender comes in with an injury to an arm, and the urgent care providers really just so hyper-focused on their hormones that they're taking or their process of transition that the transgender patient just feels like, no, I'm really just here to talk about my arm. Hmm. Do we need to go into all of this? Or even maybe in some instances, that's not appropriate. I don't need to be talking to you about that. Hmm. So let's say that an organization, perhaps somebody listening to this podcast, is looking to start a program like the one at Mainline or at a minimum just expand their ability to provide that inclusive care for transgender patients. Where should an organization begin that journey? The most important place to begin is in organizational buy-in. There has to be at the high levels of leadership a commitment and a level of comprehension of the necessity of this care. And it needs to be woven in to the mission and the vision and the values of that healthcare system. So if there isn't that buy-in from leadership, it's going to be very, very difficult. And I'm hoping that if there wasn't buy-in before, the focus right now on health equity, the focus on transgender patients in the news at least gives a launching point for organizations to say, hey, this is a part of our mission. This is part of what we do when we talk about providing inclusive care and being a diverse and inclusive organization ourselves. Yeah, right now we're at a pretty pivotal point in our society. I think organizations that are able to really capitalize and utilize that momentum will determine who's the most successful in providing those services. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Once an organization has that buy-in, they've got support from leadership, how would an organization go about prioritizing or knowing where to actually begin when it comes to providing that inclusive care? At Mainline, the decision was made that the starting point was really with traditional mediums used to provide education for all the workforce. So if you work in healthcare, you have to once a year do a module that says you know how to use a fire extinguisher. And Mainline started by saying, and you also are going to watch this module that says you understand what LGBTQ is and, you know, some basic health disparities for these communities. And I think that's a very simple start. And that was a good place to start. The next steps are to identify who in your organization is going to start with for training. We started with clinical competency and the prescribers and the support staff in those prescribing offices, because those are the folks that answer the phones Hmm. and they are the face of what you're saying you provide. So if they don't have the language right, or they don't know how to use correct pronouns or how to feel comfortable around transgender patients before the clinician ever even sees 
the patient, you have failed them, and they're not likely to return or they may not even come in. So what comes after that clinical training and the training for staff? Pretty shortly after that, if not simultaneously, it's important to look at the support staff. And that includes everybody from your patient registrars to your lab techs, to your dietary staff, to your environmental services staff, to the people that are running the technology and whatever electronic medical record is being utilized. So much goes into healthcare systems that is not patient-facing that if you neglect those entities, you set people up for failure as opposed to providing the education and setting them up for success. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Thanks for listening to Radio Advisory. It's a tough time to be a leader in healthcare right now. There was plenty of change and disruption to grapple with even before COVID-19 came along. At the end of every episode, Ray says, we're here to help, and we are. Let us know how we can help you by taking our two-minute survey at advisory.com slash pod survey. Tell us what you want to hear about, what you're struggling with, or what you think about the podcast. Talk to us at advisory.com slash pod survey. Allow me to take a moment and lean into, I think, some of the discomfort here. So when I speak to a lot of physicians, I might hear the pushback of, you know, the gender doesn't matter to me, the scientist, the clinician. What I care about is your biological sex. And therefore, I don't care about what you want to be called or, or what the pronoun is. Now, that might be a, a stereotype of, of somebody who might be vehemently pushing back. But I want to hear, what do you have to say to that provider who might be pushing back? When we, as clinical providers, begin to work, we don't focus solely on one entity of any human that comes across us. And if we do, we're not providing very good care. If I don't, you know, if I pretend that you're not homeless and that you're not addicted to substances, and I only focus on this one little wound on your arm, and we're not going to talk about the fact that that's from injecting drugs, I'm get, one, I'm going to see you back real soon. <laughs> Two, I, you know, I'm probably going to see complications of that because you're going to keep injecting. So I, I think we really miss the mark if we stay that narrowly focused. I wonder too if there's just a misunderstanding on what misgendering a patient actually means when you're transgender. Yeah, sure. I think the misunderstanding is in the significance of misgendering or using the wrong name for a patient. There was a 19-year-old transgender teenager that came in and had not changed any documents to reflect that person's affirmed name, the name that they wanted to be called, so that all of their documents had their legal name, and their legal name was a male name. So that person signed in on the sheet that we all know so well when you walk into appointments using their affirmed name, which is a female name. That particular person's name was Amelia, and then using her legal last name. So in doing that, she was able to provide the staff with the information that they need to check her in correctly, right? Her legal last name was present, but she was also able to give a message that this is what she wants to be called. Then the staff proceeded to utilize her legal name. She didn't 
stand up or move when they called her from the waiting room using that male name. When the staff person leaves the waiting area, she stood up and left. Um, And she was not seen. If you allow me to put on my administrator hat, that is a patient with a really awful patient experience story that's probably going to rate that as such that might be going on to Yelp and health grades and sharing that story. They're also a patient that might not come back to not only your organization, but to the healthcare system in general, which is, of course, something that we want to avoid when we're talking about supporting health equity. And I think this comes back to what you were talking about earlier, which is the very first place that you need to start is having that organizational buy-in and perhaps even having kind of an internal chief salesperson that says, this is why this is important. Is that right? It is right. And if if success is measured by our program's success, I will tell you that 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 person needs to be your CEO. That person needs to be as visible with regard to the inclusion of LGBTQ people in the system as they are visible on every other thing that they speak about. We've been hearing more and more how it's not enough to have your diversity, respect, inclusion person be the champion voice in this. They're kind of expected to already have bought in. Mm-hmm. It needs to be CEO level. It needs to be C-suite level leadership championing this message. It's interesting because we actually talked about that in an episode we did on racism as, as a health issue. And it's important, I think, that you're raising it again here because when we're talking about inequity, whether it's based on race, whether it's based on LGBTQ status, right, it's important that it's not just an initiative off to the side, right? It needs to be something that's supported by the entire C-suite. I also want to acknowledge the fact that that's hard, right? We're in a pandemic. There are a thousand fires in front of providers and healthcare leaders. I wonder if there is some low-hanging fruit, some easy things that any organization can implement, even if they're not going forth with a full-blown primary care specialty practice that will help them support transgender patients. There are. There are some really simple things that can be done um, that I would encourage any system to implement immediately. The easiest thing to do would be to create unisex or single-use per-person bathroom. Some of the limitations around bathrooms for systems is that we don't all get to build our buildings from the beginning, right? Some of our buildings are 30 years old or Mm -hmm. older. So the bathrooms may not be set up in a situation or location that this can be easily done The easiest thing to do in that scenario is just put a lock on the inside of the multiple stall bathroom so that if there is somebody in that bathroom that is uncomfortable or nervous that they're in the men's room, but they may be challenged in that men's room or they're unsafe in that men's room, they can just lock the door and then it's a single stall bathroom until they're done. Mm hmm. Yeah, the the bathrooms are such an easy thing. And that's obviously been something that's been high profile over the last couple of years. Are there some other just kind of simple solutions that an organization can take here? Yep. I mean, other simple things would be sort of increasing the visibility of LGBTQ affirming reading material in your waiting room. Hmm. Or if you are a healthcare system that hangs flags in recognition of other periods of time in our culture that are significant, consider hanging up a pride flag for Pride Month, for the Mm -hmm. month of June. 
in the same place that you would hang up your flag or materials for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Hmm. You just put those things really all on one par. Breast cancer doesn't resonate with everybody, but everybody knows when they see it <laughs> that a pink ribbon is, you know, is recognizing breast cancer awareness. That's such a good example. And that that really diffuses any kind of fear I think that somebody might have or discomfort that somebody might have. We put up lots of materials that celebrate a specific subset of patients. We see people sometimes have a level of discomfort around LGBTQ flags and recognition and will verbalize that to administration or on surveys that they receive or when they're asked to give their input. And I think systems should be prepared with a person or a group of people that that feedback can be sent to and responded to. The example that you just offered is pushback internally, right? Pushback from a fellow provider, from somebody within the system. But I imagine there's going to be a moment where you get pushback from another patient. What would you do to prepare an organization for that moment? You really want to make sure that that feedback gets sent to somebody that is prepared with the language and the history Mm -hmm. to explain to that person that, we are rec- we recognize all kinds of diversity in our system. And here are the things in our system that recognize that diversity. Here are the other things. And most people will settle for that. Hmm. Some will not. And that's the other thing that I think is important to recognize is that there may be some people that will not want care from your facility based on a bias or a perception that they have And I think that that's okay, Mm -hmm. but the organization might not. So the person who that feedback is going to needs to know where they stand. Mm -hmm. And there's two important things I think you said there. The first is that the person who's dealing with that feedback in the moment is absolutely not the physician. It's not the person who is set up to have an appointment with that patient. And it's somebody that is equipped with the right talking points and the ability to root their decision in the organization's goals. I want to give us a couple of moments to talk about the intersection of race and transgender communities, right? We know that in particular, Black trans women have been a target of a lot of violence over the last several years. How would you suggest healthcare companies balance the dual needs of a transgender population, but also a Black population? That's a tall order. I'm not sure that there is any simple answer to that question. The best thing that a healthcare system can do is make sure that the programs that you have in place that serve either one of those populations singularly are robust and intact and supported. And then when they combine in one human, there are resources to draw from, specialists that stand up and identify themselves as prepared and equipped and desiring to see those patients and then listen. Mm. After that person is seen, stop and listen to the feedback and be prepared, you know, for the message that you receive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Dane, I want to ask how your approach may or may not have changed given the move by HHS to remove the Obama era protections that specifically ban discrimination against transgender patients. It has not changed anything for me, given the region that I practice in. Pennsylvania and many other states have protections 
in place for LGBTQ people, specifically transgender people, that will not allow that kind of discrimination to occur. And that is a privilege and not one experienced by everybody in our country. I do think that that HHS ruling in places where there is already a foothold for discrimination against transgender patients, I think they have been empowered by it. In places where that foothold does not exist, I don't think anything is going to change. I also imagine that in the same way that states themselves have their own rules and regulations around discrimination, that just individual organizations can make those rules for themselves and can decide what will we stand for as a medical group, as a hospital, as a health system, and how does that mean our decision-making process changes when it comes to who works here and who practices for us? You can look at it in two different ways, too, that's interesting. So for a healthcare system, right, we provide healthcare. We just talked about that. But for a healthcare system, we also have large workforces that we have to insure. So one of the things that organizations can do is say, look, for our workforce, our health insurance is going to continue to cover our transgender people, our transgender employees, Mm -hmm. still have access to health insurance that provides coverage for their gender-affirming surgery, provides coverage for their gender-affirming care, and provides coverage for their hormones. And that's a big voice. Dane, this has been such a valuable conversation for me and I think for our listeners. I want to ask you one final question. It's one that I'm asking all of my guests at Radio Advisory. What advice do you have for healthcare leaders right now? Some advice that I would offer for leaders at this point that can have a huge impact would be to pay attention to how you're collecting information from patients and don't limit that to what we know as our binary definition of gender and our binary definition of sex. Recognize that inclusive care is a clinical program which is separate from patient engagement initiatives that require operational leadership and clinical decision-making and workflow redesign and educational resources. And with that recognition, be prepared to put people into position to implement the operational pieces that make these programs successful. That was great, Dane. Thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory, and we will have to have you back. Thank you. Yes, HHS has removed some of the protections that ban discrimination against transgender patients. But it's important to remember that you as a leader have the ability to define the level of discrimination that you would accept at your own institution. And as you do that, you also have the opportunity to define just how you will support LGBTQ patients. Some of that stuff is hard, but as Dane shared, there are a lot of easy moves that you can do here. And as always, remember, we're here to help. Okay, was that enough banter, Joe? I don't know. Uh, Actually, it was confusing. (laughs) Ugh.